0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Within the space of just three decades, monumental episodes of exploration and expedition, politics and violence, including the mapping of the Oregon Trail, the acquisition of California, and the Mexican-American Civil Wars forever changed the history of the United States and the shape of the American West. And one man, an illiterate trapper, scout, and soldier was there for it all, Kit Carson. In his book, Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson and the conquest of the American West, author and historian Hampton Sides follows Carson's a through line in this extraordinary period of American history. Today on the show, Hampton and I discuss how Kit Carson became a living legend through embellished accounts of his heroics and yet undertook real-life exploits that were nearly as unbelievable as the tall tales told about him. We explore how Carson joined the grizzled fraternity of mountain men in his youth and the wide array of skills that helped him excel as a trapper. We discuss how Carson then parlayed those skills into becoming a scout on expeditions that took him from St. Louis to California, over the Rocky and Sierra Mountains, and all throughout the wild, rugged West. Hampton shares how these expeditions turned carson to a national celebrity and what this frontiersman thought of his fame hampton also impacts carson's complex relationship with american indians and how he respected and adopted the ways of some tribes and yet fought viciously against others and we end our conversation with why he decided to become an officer in the union army during the civil war his initially reluctant and then brutal campaigns against the navajos and his legacy today after the show's over check out our show notes at aom.is carson hampton joins me now via clearcast.io All right, Hampton Sides, welcome back to the show. It's good to be with you. So we had you on a couple of years ago to talk about your book, On Desperate Ground, which was about the greatest battle of the Korean War, The Chosen Reservoir. Brought you back on because I want to talk about a book you wrote. It's almost 13 years ago. And I think you started it even like back in 2002. It's called Blood and Thunder. And it's about the famed trapper, mountain man, scout, soldier, Kit Carson. I'm curious, what drew you to Kit Carson as a subject? Well, Blood and Thunder
1: isn't really a biography of Kit Carson. It's you know, it, it's using Kit Carson as a through line to tell a much bigger story. And what drew me to Kit Carson was that this one man, in, in the span of one lifetime, went everywhere, did everything, knew everybody somehow intersected with history in this consequential way and enabled me as a writer to tell this bigger story of the conquest of the American West. In in a single generation, the western third of the continent became the United States. What's amazing about Carson is that even though he wasn't a general West Pointer a writer, a big time politician, you know, he's essentially a nobody, an illiterate frontiersman. He knew everybody. And when you start charting the the big events of, of Manifest Destiny and the conquest of the West, somehow or another, he was there. He was always there. Or if he was not there, he missed it by five minutes. You know, his best friend was there, or his wife was there, or his, you know, so it's a great through line to write about this much bigger story, which is really what I was interested in because I had moved to the West. I moved here to Santa Fe and I was looking for a big canvas kind of story to sink my teeth into, try to understand this this land out here and how it became part of the United States. It's really then becomes the story of Native Americans. It becomes the story of Spanish Americans, the mountain men who are mostly French and these sort of spiral of events that led to finally the Mexican-American War and also the Civil War, which most people don't realize there were actually some pretty consequential battles that took place here in the West during the Civil War. So it's got all these different chapters and episodes, but that through line that keeps returning is this one man who is very controversial. He was... An Indian lover, and he was an Indian killer. He married into, his first wife was Arapaho. His second wife was Cheyenne. He spoke six or seven different Indian languages, but he also fought against different tribes, and especially is famous for his conquering the Navajo and leading them on their notorious long walk so i I was drawn to that part of carson's life too the fact that he was so controversial so conflicted had sort of this deep love and appreciation for native american culture but also fought against native americans in big ways that still have ramifications today
0: so yeah i think when i read this book i was like this is just it's it's epic i mean the stuff that happened in like in in a short amount of time from like the 1840s till the 1860s I mean it's mind-boggling like mm-hmm. how much happened I think what we've been going through in the past decade here in the modern age and think oh man things are just going so fast but like big changes monumental changes yeah. happened in a matter of years back then yeah
1: yeah well especially during the the mexican-american war when when uh, President Polk took office he Cast his eye west and, you know, he decided he wanted all of it. You know, he wanted the Oregon Territory, which is or Oregon and Washington now. He wanted California, which was nominally part of Mexico but was kind of semi-independent. He wanted the New Mexico Territory, which was part of Mexico. And he wanted Texas and, you know, everything in between. He wanted he wanted ports on the pacific he wanted this relatively small country to become an empire and he wanted he wanted it all in in in, in one fell swoop and he got it all during the mexican american war it was a it was a brutal and relentless land grab it was pretty shameful in many in many respects but he achieved what he sought out to do After one term in office, he went home to Tennessee, and in a few months, he was dead. James K. Polk kind of came out of nowhere and achieved what he said he was going to do, and suddenly, the United States had grown by about the size of continental Europe, (laughs) (laughs) it's just yes and those events that that led to all that just happened so fast and furious and it's so hard to even keep track of them all and all the different characters but one person just kind of treads right through the middle of it and that's kit carson and that's why he became such an interesting kind of connective tissue for this larger
0: story well let's look at the life of kit carson and along the way we can talk about some of these big events that he was involved with with in American history. So we'll start off when he was born. What was America like when Kit Carson was born? Well,
1: he was born in Kentucky but moved very very soon thereafter to Kentucky and you know there was there was this slow but steady march westward to find you know untouched land. And he he was part of that movement. His parents were. He was distantly related to Daniel Boone. And these were true frontiersmen. They moved to Missouri. But beyond Missouri, you know, it was wilderness. And the notion was that, that sort of the middle third of the country was going to be set aside for the Native American tribes, many of whom had been relocated, forcibly re- relocated during... Uh, the Trail of Tears and other, and other forced relocation sagas like that. But then beyond the plains, there was this all, this all whole other part of the continent that was not very well understood. It was, part of it was in, you know, part of Mexico, part of it was um, just wilderness that had been not, you know, had not been mapped or explored very much. And then you finally get to the Pacific coast and you get a different, Continental powers that are vying for and interested in controlling, the, particularly the Pacific Northwest. You know, the British are interested in it and have lots of little tentacles in uh, in that part of the world. The Russians are still trapping and exploring up around Alaska and and working their way down the coast. California was part of Mexico, and then you know, and and by extension part of the greater kind of Spanish empire. So, everyone had their eyes on this great prize of of kind of the virgin far west. And the United States was beginning to express its interest in, in having all that. And so, Carson's family moved from Kentucky to Missouri, which was, that was the end of the line. I mean, you know, St. Louis was kind of the gateway to wilderness. And there was a a trail that was formed from Independence, Missouri, to Santa Fe uh, known as the Santa Fe trail and that was kind of the one little tentacle that you know where there was some trade and there you know there were the, there was expeditions west and Carson, as a young boy, his father died when he was eight, and uh, he his stepfather he butted heads with his stepfather, and he wanted to get the hell out of his home environment. He became an apprentice to a saddle maker, but then he started you know, hearing these stories about these mountain men, these people out West that came West on the Santa Fe trail and went into the mountains and trapped beaver. There was a tremendous amount of money to be made doing that. It was an adventurous life. It was a dangerous life, but he wanted to be part of this fraternity of greasy, grizzled old mountain men. And he ran away. Uh, when he was about sixteen, he uh, ran ran away to Santa Fe and really never looked back. He went up into the mountains up around Taos and he slowly but surely worked his way into this fraternity of of men and became, in the end, one of the most famous mountain men of all. So that's how he got a start in the West, trapping beaver, which was an incredible, incredibly valuable asset because, really, because. Uh, for some reason people back in london and paris and new york had decided that a that a beaver hat was the finest hat you could <laughs> you could have it was a fashion statement and so you know really these men became so proficient at trapping beaver that beaver became nearly extinct in many parts of the west but along the way they learned how the rivers You know, how the drainages flowed, you know, where, which, you know, the big rivers, the little rivers, they learned essentially, if not formally to map the West, at least to get around. They sort of made a mental map of, of the West. And these mountain men, with all this knowledge of this territory that was otherwise unexplored, then went on to become scouts and guides in various topographical expeditions into the west and uh so this was valuable information that they had and carson was you know proved to be the very best one of all of the mountain men to make that transition from trapping beaver to guiding
0: formal expeditions into the west one thing you talk about and you you quote people who talked about the skills that carson had i mean he was just any in any situation in the west and the wilds like he could handle himself and what were some of the skills that he was famous for that he had It wasn't any one thing that Carson had that
1: made him so competent at what he did. It was a kind of a a panoply of skills. He knew when to fight. He knew when to bluff. He knew when to negotiate. He was cool under pressure. He was really, you know, he was was a, a great horseman, although most of these guys didn't have horses. They had mules they really trusted their mules and the, the you know they would say you know the horse won the west and it actually wasn't a horse it was a mule <laughs> that won the west but uh he carson was uh, you know good with a knife he was good in a fight he was a, a expert marksman a good hunter he was a decent cook he was a um, just somebody you wanted on your side when you're out in the wilds and it's kind of extraordinary given how many scrapes he got into with different Native American tribes over the decades, that he he lived to a uh, fairly ripe old age in those days and, and died of natural causes. He, um, he somehow knew where to be and had a sixth sense for you know when to fight and when to avoid a fight. Uh, he also had a, a really remarkable, even though he was illiterate, a remarkable gift for language. He was fluent in Spanish. He was fairly fluent in French and he knew multiple native American languages and sign language. So he was great at communicating and all the different expeditions remark about that, that, you know, he was the guy that came forward and, you know, figured out what was going on and communicated with the local tribes and, you know, was able to negotiate whatever it is they wanted or needed at the time. So those are some of his, those are some of his skills. Um, he certainly had a temper, and if you if you riled him, he would not back down. He was ferocious and he was relentless, and he would pursue you. and And I guess that's his other famous skill is was pursuing people. He was an amazing tracker and would sometimes track uh, a fugitive or in in one famous case, a, uh, a woman who had been kidnapped for days and days and days across. The mountains and the plains and he could read, you know, read the signs on, on, on the ground and was quite famous for, for this skill, which is really uh, almost myst- mystical skill, you know, to look at the grass and try to determine how old a particular footprint is, you know, <laughs> I don't know how people do that, but he was apparently
0: phenomenal at that skill. Well, and it was during his time as a mountain man where his complex relationship with Native Americans began. This is when he married. I think he married two Native American women during this time. Yes. His his first wife, singing grass, was Arapaho. And
1: a lot of people say that, that those were his happiest years was when he lived with her tribe, her band of Arapaho Indians, and really lived more like an Indian than than a than a white guy, than an Anglo, and had two children with her. Unfortunately, she died in child. In childbirth, he raised their children and along the way married a Cheyenne woman. That marriage did not not work out very well, and it ended in what they call the Cheyenne divorce, where she basically kicked him out of her teepee. But, you know, all this is just to say that he was somebody who respected and, you know, found a lot of power in Native American traditions and language and lived with great respect for certain native american tribes there were other tribes that he seemed to spend much of his life fighting against and uh, maybe foremost among those were, were the blackfeet and also the comanches and sometimes the kiowas so he didn't really look at native americans in a monolithic way like indians you know out there. He he was very specific in his allegiance to certain tribes and his often lifelong uh, antipathy to other tribes. So it's very interesting. Um, his third and his final wife was Spanish, came from an old Spanish family in Taos, Josefa Jaramillo. And so he then sort of just organically morphed again into kind of like Spanish guy. He spoke Spanish. He converted to Catholicism. He raised his kids to speak Spanish as Catholics and lived in Taos and viewed himself as allied, you know, aligned with Spanish New Mexico, which of course they've been there for hundreds of years. So it's interesting. This guy just keeps kind of like a zealot figure. You know, he keeps kind of changing into whatever. You know, and, and he's like he's like a cat he had nine lives. He, he you know, he went from being a mountain man to you know being a rancher to being a scout and a hunter, and then he became uh, finally joined the regular army, the Union Army. And fought against the Confederates in several battles. And then then became, uh, at the end of his life, he became a brigadier general. So he, he and, and there's a couple of other incarnations I did, I just skipped over. Like a, an inter, a, a cross-continental courier. He rode to Washington to give messages. And he was, you know, he's a scout and he was a guide. And he was uh, so many other things. So he had this real talent for sort of rebooting Himself as soon as uh, one fo- lifestyle seemed to dry up or one set of opportunities evaporated, he, he would just recreate
0: himself anew. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, so as a trapper, he started to make a name for himself, but like where this, where he became like almost a living legend was when he became the scout for Fremont, John Fremont. So for those who aren't familiar, who was John Fremont and why was he exploring the West?
1: Yeah, well, John C. Fremont was a a, a botanist and a, a cartographer in a, living in Washington. Very talented, very ambitious, young man, very good-looking dude. Ladies seemed to think he was uh, extremely handsome and dashing, and he had his ambition really knew no bounds. He he was all those things I mentioned, but he really wanted to be president someday. And like a lot of ambitious young men, he, just, he married a woman who is the daughter of a very, very powerful man. And this man was Senator Thomas Hart Benton from Missouri, one of the architects, if not the principal architect of Manifest Destiny. John C. Fremont Knew that Benton was his sort of ticket to to get to where he wanted to go, which was to explore the West, map the West, and then somehow use his fame and celebrity to uh, catapult into a political career. Well, it worked out pretty much the way he envisioned it. He married Benton's daughter, Jessie Fremont, who was herself just a remarkable woman who, you know, was educated pretty much the way. You know, if the senator had had a son, this is the way he would have educated his son. She didn't go to finishing school or anything like that. She, she got a, a rigorous education and was a, just a very shrewd political creature her, herself. And they became, uh, John C. Fremont and, and Jesse became kind of like a wa- Washington's original power couple. He would go on these expeditions and come back and she would, do most of the writing because it, she was a very talented writer and understood kind of um, the PR aspect of all this. It's like one thing to go and describe a bunch of plants and the topography and, and try to do it in a scientific fashion. But those reports that Fremont wrote were rather dull and rather dry. She would take these reports and turn them into great stories that became best-selling books and that ensured her husband's fame and fortune and in these books Fremont was you know a, a dashing hero but perhaps even more dashing a hero as as depicted in those books was Kit Carson and that's really how Kit Carson became famous it seems like you know on every page Carson was doing some something daring, something bold, you know, that he was plucky and resourceful and got the expedition out of innumerable scrapes. So Carson kind of owed his fame to John C. Fremont and 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 Fremont's wife, Jessie. Carson however didn't understand that celebrity. He didn't like that celebrity. He he was a pretty shy and awkward guy. He didn't he didn't understand why people back east seemed to know his name he had spent his youth trying to get away from America. And suddenly (laughs) he was uh, uh, this almost like a action figure hero. He became then the subject of all these pulp novels that were written. uh, I mean, really bad, most of them very bad novels, but they were kind of precursors to what we now call a Western. And often Kit Carson was the star of these books, the protagonist. And, you know, somehow they turned him into like six foot eight, blonde, blue eyed, you know, Aryan Viking or something. And uh, he was like five, four, not particularly handsome, shy and awkward around the ladies. He just didn't, you know, it, they, they turned him into something else, a kind of a caricature. And he spent much of his life trying to live that caricature down, uh, trying to understand it. And he didn't get any money from these books. They didn't get his permission to use his name. And the ultimate irony was he couldn't read these books, (laughs) you know, because he was illiterate. Uh, So he had to have other people read to him these exploits that were completely, I mean, Carson had an amazing life and he did amazing things, but uh, of course that wasn't good enough for these novelists who (laughs) had to exaggerate. It would say like, could Carson would, Killed two Indians before breakfast, and which presumably was a good thing back then, considered a good thing. And it, it really, it really set up this mythology that Carson spent the rest of his life trying to live down. But all of it goes back to Fremont's expeditions, which Benton, Senator Benton, was instrumental in commissioning. They left from St. Louis. There were three main Fremont expeditions. So Fremont's expeditions west really were important historically because he kind of charted and mapped the Oregon Trail which was then a very crude and dangerous route west to towards the towards the northwest uh, across the great plains and after his books came out books that were largely written by his wife this kind of ignited this great migration of of pioneers. And people said, well, it's, maybe it's not so dangerous. Uh, Let's all, you know, then in in mass began to, to migrate West along the Oregon trail. So this is an an instance in which cartography and exploration led directly to settlement on a big scale, all part of a kind of a master plan of, of Benton and, and the others who wanted really wanted the United States to, be a continental empire from shore to shore, from sea to shining sea, and uh, it it basically worked. You know the first the first act of occupation and settlement is you know, first exploration, and Fremont led those early expeditions, and Carson was his guide, and their friendship is also a very interesting dynamic in the book. Is that you know the these two guys were kind of codependent the, Fremont and Carson, two people who seem to really need each other. You know, Carson, very self-reliant guy, but also very conscious of the fact that he was illiterate, that there was a whole world back east of educated people, powerful people that he was curious about. Fremont was quite educated and, you know, Carson seemed to defer to him in many ways when Fremont asked him to go do something some sometimes a very unsavory thing. Carson would do it. He was dutiful to a fault, and Fremont meanwhile he just he needed a guide he needed someone who really knew the West he needed someone who was really proficient in all those skills of of survival in a an extreme environment that Carson already had, having been a mountain man for for all those years so these two men very much were. I guess in modern parlance, we'd say they were codependent, or they, you know, they they very much relied on each other and they they did remain friends for for the rest of their lives. So it's an interesting part of Carson's life is is the the extent to which he identified with Fremont and needed Fremont
0: somehow to um, almost like a father figure that Carson seemed to need to have. Well, going back to that, you know, this the celebrity and the books that were written about Carson, one of the most like poignant moments in the the book is when you describe this. This is like after I think this is during after the Civil War when he was basically fighting Native Americans. There was a a family of settlers they were kidnapped. White was their last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Carson went to go hunt her, you know, find her from these. I think it was a Native American tribe that kidnapped her, and he found her, but she was already. She's already dead uh-huh. uh, but amongst her possessions, she had a kit, a book about Kit Carson you know who <laughs> came and saved people and you know that was just like one of those moments like he he couldn't live up to the legend and right uh, yeah yeah yeah
1: that that's that is a famous story and it's it's a hundred percent true it it's almost it's a f- fabulous you know like something that seems so it seems like it is a made up story, but it is true he got the assignment essentially to go find this woman who had been kidnapped by Hickeria Apaches on the pl- on the plains and he spent nearly a week tracking her across the staked plains and he found her but unfortunately she'd been killed as you say in her possessions they found uh, the very first blood and thunder book this these these horrible pulp westerns and in that book in that particular story he was the protagonist and, and the weird plot line of the book was that he had gotten the assignment to go find a woman who'd been captured who'd uh, captured and kidnapped by Native Americans and he went and found her and saved the day and won her you know back and brought her back to her family that's that's in the novel so and you know but he couldn't in real life live up to that legend and you know of course, he couldn't read the story either. Someone read it to him. And he was like, it just, uh, it was like first time that he ever became aware of his own legend, you know, that he was some kind of mythological figure back East that these novels were. And of course, this was the first of many of these terrible novels, but it is an amazing story. And, uh, and the, <laughs> Ann White was her name. You can't make this up. That her name was White. <laughs> her, she'd been coming down the Santa Fe Trail with her family. All the men in her group were killed, but she and her African American slave and her daughter, her baby daughter, were kidnapped. And so, yeah. It's a, it's an it's just one of you know this is the thing, <laughs> tracking down stories about Kid Carson is just you know it's a full time job. It took kept me busy for years and years because you know there are just so many of them and many of them are false, uh, many of them were exaggerated, but just as many of them are true. Uh, and you know it's like if something like that happened in my life, I would say you know that was like probably the biggest thing that ever happened to me, the most. Well, he had like dozens and dozens and dozens of those kinds of stories, all in one life. So it, it really is kind of an extraordinary thing to think about just all the episodes and in, incarnations and just tall tales that
0: actually proved to be true that happened to this one man. So we talked about, so he's a scout Fremont. Fremont. The, the expeditions to California... That eventually morphed into the Mexican-American War. There was some crazy stuff in that chapter of like insurrections going on and just nutty stuff. The Mexican-American War happened. Carson got roped into that. He started working with, I think it was Kearney was the general of the Army right. of the West. Mm-hmm. Started fighting in the Mexican-American War. But then after the Mexican-American War, Carson continued to be a soldier. And he actually became an officer for the Union Army during the Civil War.
1: You know, he, he was rather reluctant to to do that. And it was kind of complicated in the sense that, you know, he was originally from Missouri and most of his brothers had sided with the Confederacy. And, you know, why he decided to become union officer is kind of interesting, but he, but he did. And he, and one of the many reasons he did is because there was an army coming from Texas to try to, claim New Mexico and Colorado for the Confederacy, and uh, New Spanish New Mexicans for generations and generations had had this fear and loathing of Texans. <laughs> in some in some senses, they <laughs> we still do. Tejanos, you got to watch out for the
0: Tejanos. Yeah, right, yeah. the
1: Tejanos. Yeah, and uh, they you know. So he was able to recruit very quickly a pretty large army of Spanish New Mexicans that he commanded and fought. Uh, against those Texans when they came up the Rio Grande at a place called Valverde a really important battle and one that I think most Americans don't even know happened at all and you know after the, the Texans were sent back to Texas where they belong you know Carson Harry he was still in the Union army and he he basically wanted to go back to Taos and be with his wife and family, but a general by the name of Carlton came along and said, no, well, we're on a war footing now. Why don't we now go after some of these tribes that keep attacking the settlements along the Rio Grande? The wandering tribes, the raiding tribes, and foremost among those at that time were the Navajo, the Din- Diné. And this general, Carlton, came up with this plan to round up all the Diné, one of the largest tribes even then, and certainly now in in, in America, and move them to a reservation on the Pecos River where they could be watched and where they could be taught to be sedentary Christian farmers, like completely rewire their society because they were, what they really were, were semi-nomadic sheep herders and you know moving over a huge piece of land the diné country was just massive all over the four corners region of what we call them the four corners now of the united states and when general carlton came up with this ambitious plan to sort of rewire the navajo he decided that he had to have carson to to actually lead it and carson tried to resign he didn't really want any part of this he said he had he had Joined the Union Army to fight Texans, not Native Americans. But uh, in the end, he signed on, and he thus began really the chapter of his life, the episode of his life for which he is now widely reviled and you know hated by Native Americans, and and hated for just the ferocity of this scorched earth campaign that he led into Navajo country to break their spirit, break their back, you know, break the back of their nation and to march them to this kind of like a prison camp on the Pecos River. Uh, this is probably what he's most famous for now. And this long life of many twists and turns comes down to uh, one of the last chapters
0: of his life, the Navajo campaigns. And I thought this was, I mean, this was, this was happening during the Civil War, but I thought it was interesting because most people think, you know, after the Civil War, the Union Army. To start, they started the American Indian Wars. I mean, Sherman was a big part of that. Like, this was the precursor to that. Yeah. Well, Carson found that it was
1: almost impossible to fight the Navajo, you know, that they, they didn't fight pitched battles. You know, they would raid and retreat, raid and retreat. And Navajo country is so wrinkled and full of canyons and, you know they would just disappear. They would vanish into this massive wilderness. And uh, so the only way Carson could fight them was to starve them to death, was to kind of, even before Sherman led his scorched earth campaign across the American South, Carson was doing this and perfecting it, burning every cornfield, destroying every orchard, slaughtering every sheep, every cow, every horse that they came across, poisoning Water sources, destroying salt sources, literally starving the Navajo slowly but surely to death. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons why the Navajo, you know, they never forgot and they never forgave. It's like it happened yesterday because it really had a a psychic effect because not only were they being attacked, but it was their, their very land, their sacred land was being attacked and Carson proved to be very good at this. He didn't want to do it. He tried to resign several times, but once he signed on, you know, he was brutal. And and it worked because of in tens and twenties and then finally by the hundreds and thousands, the Navajo surrendered and they went on their long walk. This experiment on the Pecos River did not go well. They hated it, they were miserable. they refused to plant their crops. They didn't want to become Christian farmers. <laughs> they wanted to go back to their ter- their, you know, their beloved land. And after the Civil War, actually, Sherman, who you mentioned, does come out to negotiate some treaties and decides that this experiment was an abject failure, and the Navajo. After much discussion, they decided to return them back to their homeland, which is one of the very rare instances in our history where you know no one, no one apologized, but they admitted the failure of relocating a people forcibly, and they actually returned them to their ancestral lands, which is instead of Oklahoma or some other place hundreds of miles, thousands of miles from where they actually are from. So the Navajo were returned in this uh, another long walk, but a, a joyous one back to the Diné country where they they are now the largest the largest uh, reservation in the in the country and one of the largest Native American tribes in, in the in the country. So, but you know Carson, like I've said several times, he was illiterate. We don't really know what he th- thought and felt. About all of this, I think he felt uh, there. There are some indications that he he certainly felt reluctant to do it in the first place, and then he felt obviously um, he recognized that it was a, f- a failure that it didn't work, and many you know thousands of Navajo died. There was outbreaks of different diseases, and you know it was you know just a great tragedy that didn't really need to happen, and. Again, Carson was kind of at the center of it, but he did spend the rest of his life really quite directly advocating on behalf of various Native American tribes and establishing treaties with, particularly, he was very close to the Utes and went all the way to Washington with a group of Ute elders and negotiated a, a, a treaty that was quite successful for, for and, and led to the creation of their own sovereign lands. But this... Navajo campaign, I think, just remained a stain on his career for the rest of his life and really is the thing that he's most famous for all these many years later.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought you said how Carson, like he, he, ever since he was a trapper, like Like the way he looked at Native Americans, he looked at, he viewed Native Americans as Native Americans viewed Native Americans, right? Like instead of a white person, a European at the time, like think of Native Americans as a monolith and they're all the same. Carson (laughs) understood, no, like they, like they, they all think they're the best people. Like they are, like the Comanches (laughs) are the people or the Utes are the people and every other other tribe. And Carson, Kind of had that worldview as well, right? He did, he did, and to his credit, I mean, I I think that he is a you know in a
1: completely different class of figures in the American West. I mean, this was no Sheridan, he, this, this was no Chivington, famous for his massacres. This was no Custer. This was a guy who really actually understood a lot about Native American life and saw. That most of these clashes that were happening out in the West were, were happening because white settlers, white miners, you know, Mormons and missionaries were changing the West and encroaching on Native American territory. And he hated what was happening. And I think maybe on some level he understood that. He himself had brought this on, by virtue of leading those expeditions to the west, and you know he had sort of fouled his own nest because he loved the American West, and you know the the pristine West that he roamed over when he was in his twenties as a mountain man had been ruined <laughs> by by you know igniting these mass migrations of of Europeans Anglo. Anglo-Americans. So, you know, in his later years, as he's negotiating treaties and giving testimony to Congress, you see a very different Carson. He's he's quite contrite. Uh, uh, he hates what has happened to the West. And he hates, you know, I mean, there's just a lot, you know, a lot of, of course, don't forget the gold rush, which he actually is thought to have played a bit, bit of a role in himself. He, uh, he may have, he was trans, transmitting some messages to Washington. And, and in one of the saddlebags, it's thought that the very first mention of gold being found in California was in one of those saddlebags. So, I mean, even, even the gold rush, he may have helped ignite. And, you know, I, I think the real tragedy of Carson's life story is that he kind of ruined his own paradise in one lifetime and you know near the end of the, his life the, the transcontinental railroad has come and i mean the old west that he knew is over and it's a whole it's a whole different world when he died in
0: 1868 well hampton where can people go to learn more about this book and the rest of your work
1: well obviously you know anywhere <laughs> where books are sold but i always encourage people to go to independent bookstores which are struggling and suffering during this pandemic or my website which has legit all kinds of inf- information which is hamptonsides.com fantastic well hamptonsides
0: thanks for your time it's been a pleasure i've really enjoyed it thanks so much My guest today was Hampton Sides. We talked about his book, Blood and Thunder, The Epic Story of Kit Carson, The Conquest of the American West. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, hamptonsides.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash Carson. You can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Member, you'd think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay, reminding you not only to listen to the Win podcast, but put what you've heard into action.